Good morning. It's good to see all of you today. I know it's a little different to see someone other than Ryan or Dustin up here, um, but I'm very grateful for an opportunity to preach the word to this church. Uh, I love this church. I love you guys, and it's a lot less intimidating to get to speak to brothers and sisters who love me, care about me. Uh, some of you even let me kiss your babies, and I'm very grateful. I feel very comfortable preaching the word of God to you. Uh, I feel much more comfortable with the fact that you are people who are passionate about Christ. Uh, you love his word. You are eager. And I don't have to give you wisdom of words. Uh, I don't have to give you an eloquent speech. You want the word of God. And if you came looking for uh, an eloquent speech or wisdom of words, I don't have that for you. But I have good news that we have the word of God. Our God has spoken. And my prayer this morning is that we would know what he has said and that we would know him more intimately as we study his word. Um, over the past few weeks, as a church, we've been going through a series on spiritual disciplines. For the past two weeks, Dustin taught on the Word of God. And this morning, we're going to look at prayer. And then next week, Ryan will teach on fasting. Um, before we begin, if you can join me as I pray to God. Let's pray to the Lord. Uh, Father, we praise you, Lord. God, we thank you. That you are the almighty king of all. You're the, the one true God and you are our God. Lord, and you saved our souls, Lord. We thank you. We thank you that the blood of Christ was shed on our behalf. God, we thank you that you did not cast us off, Lord, but you sought us. You pursued us, Lord. God, we thank you, Lord, that you were so full of mercy and compassion, Lord, that you reached out and you ripped us out of hell. Father, we thank you for your mercy. And God, I pray that you would be here this morning. Lord, we ask you to rend the heavens and come down. God, we ask that you would be here. Lord, if, you're, if you were not here, we meet in vain, Lord. We need your help. God, I have nothing to offer on my own. I need your help to preach your word. Lord, we ask that you would teach us, that your spirit would teach us. Lord, that you would help us to exalt your name this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text for this morning is going to be Psalm 27. So if you can open with me to Psalm 27. Psalm 27 of David. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh... My adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. 
Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of God. In this psalm, Psalm 27, it takes place in the middle of a series of psalms, Psalms 26 through Psalm 28. And these psalms are all focused on seeking God in his house. In this specific psalm, we know very little about the background of the psalm. We don't know what specific circumstances are going on that caused David to write this psalm. One thing is very clear, though, as you read this psalm. When you read the psalm, you can see that David is in a lot of trouble. If you look in verse 6, you can see that David is completely surrounded by enemies. If you look in verses 11 and 12, he begins to describe his enemies. He describes them as those who breathe out violence against him. He describes them as false witnesses who have arisen against him. And he says that his enemies have a will, a will against him. They want to take him out. David is in a terrible situation. Uh, And like I said, we do not know what specific situation he's talking about. There could be many possible situations. If you know anything about David, you know that he was constantly in trouble. If you read about his life, you see that before he was king, he was constantly pursued by Saul. His life, he was completely chased his whole life. He was always on the run. And even after he became king, you can see his own son, Solomon, tries to take him out. If you read the word and you're reading about David's life, you would look at him and you would say, man, that dude has to be terrified all the time. He has to be in constant fear. That's what you would expect. And if you are someone who struggles with fear, if you struggle with anxiety, this is the perfect psalm for you to read. Because when we start this psalm, you do not see what you expect to see from David. He is not afraid. If you, if you read this first verse with me, he is not afraid at all. He is full of confidence in his God. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He has zero fear in the midst of great trouble. Zero. This is, this is not natural. He has great confidence in his God. He is able to look beyond the circumstances, the present trouble. He's able to look beyond and have confidence in God and find rest in his God. And what we need to see in this verse is that David's confidence is completely related to his relationship with his God. He knows his God. He has intimate communion with his God. He knows him. And you can see in this verse that he begins to describe what his God is like. He he mentions his attributes. He says, this God, this Lord, he is light. He is salvation. He is a stronghold. He knows what his God is like. But these are not just facts to David. This is true about God, but these are not just facts to David. He knows this God. This is personal to David. He is not just a light. David says he's my light. He's not just salvation. He is my salvation. He is not just a stronghold, but he's the stronghold of my life. David has zero fear. Why? He knows his God. 
He has intimate communion with his God. He knows what he's like. Why should David be afraid? Why would he be afraid? The Almighty God is his salvation. What is there to fear? There is nothing to fear if this is your God. And he knows this God. We should find great comfort that our God is a deliverer. That he is a stronghold. He is a refuge for his people. What we look to in our time of trouble, what we look to for help says a lot about us. It says a lot about our confidence. And I want you to just examine your own life for a second. Whenever you are in trouble, you are in a desperate situation, what is your initial gut reaction? What do you look to for help? Where do you turn for help? That's going to reveal a ton about what your confidence is in. And what I want us to see is that God wants us to trust in Him. He wants us to look to Him, to not run to other things. In our culture, it is very easy for us to substitute God for other things. Many other things. There are so many things. There's so much luxury in our culture. There are so many other refuges, other deliverers that are made by man that you can run to easily instead of God. It's almost like you don't even have to seek God in our culture. If you, if you chose not to, you could find other deliverers. And what we put our confidence in will reveal a ton about what we think about our God. If we look to Him or we look elsewhere. If you look in Jeremiah 2.13, God rebukes His people. They committed two sins. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and shoot out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They committed two sins. The first sin was that they forsook their God. That's the greatest sin. They forsook Him. He is the fountain of living waters. He is the only one who can truly help, who can truly satisfy. This is their greatest sin. And their second sin was that they went after something worthless. Broken cisterns. They don't even work. And they replaced Him with something worthless. And I pray that we would be a people who looks to God for help. That He is the one who can truly help us. Anxiety and fear is not something that is uh, completely in response to our circumstances. It has a deeper root. It's a deeper root to it. It's something that takes place in the heart. It's, it's only destroyed, not by changing your circumstances, but only by having your God near to you. Being near to God. That's the only way. If you look in Psalm 23, 4. David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, he was able to go through great trials and have zero fear because God was with him. He was near to God. That goes deep down into the root. And that's what we need. We need the root issue to be solved. And it only comes by being near to our God. We see that David is very confident in his God. And if you look in verse 2, he is able even to look into the past. And he can, he can have evidence. He can look to specific examples of where his God has delivered him in the past. Look at verse 2. He says, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. So he is able to look back and he's able to, to recount other examples in his life, other situations, other days of trouble, and God delivered him out of them. 
And this is an encouragement to me. This is a challenge to me to examine my own life. And I ask you to examine your life with me. Is there any evidence in your life that God is a deliverer? That he is a stronghold in the day of trouble? Is there any evidence in your life that it is infinitely more valuable to seek God than to run to a man-made deliverer? Is there any? David found confidence he was encouraged by the fact that he could look back and many, many times his God had delivered him. When his life was about to end, many times his God rescued him. And this encouraged him. This built confidence in him. David is so confident in his God that he even begins to imagine hypothetical situations. He begins to imagine worst case scenarios. If you look in verse 3, he says, Though an army... Encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. So he imagines the worst possible situation. So he imagines, okay, what if an army surrounds me? And what if they all of a sudden declare war on me? He says, in this, my heart's not going to fear. I'll be confident, even in this. Does that sound crazy to you? Why would he not fear? And what he's trying to tell us here is that the circumstances don't matter. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. It doesn't matter what the world is telling you, what it looks like on the outside. What matters is who your deliverer is, who your refuge is, who the stronghold of your life is. And for him, the Lord was his stronghold. The Lord was his light. The Lord was his deliverer. It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. This is his God. And David is full of confidence in his God. And maybe... Some of you in this room, maybe you're going through something and maybe you're thinking, I want to be confident in God, but I just don't have that. You know, this isn't natural. I don't respond this way to fear. And I would agree with you. This is not natural at all. This is supernatural. This is a work of God in the heart. This is the only way that this can be explained. And David is about to give us the secret. He's about to let us in on his secret. How is it that you have so much confidence, David? He's going to tell us. This is how. The secret he asked God for only one thing. That's it. Just one thing. And he tells us what that is in verse 4. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. So he says, I only ask for one thing. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now this is an awesome verse. I love this verse. This is one of my all-time favorite verses. It shows a hunger and a passion for God. And I've always loved this verse, but I've always taken it out of its context. And when I was studying this psalm, I was really confused. I don't see how this works in the flow of this passage. How does this work in the midst of his trial? So this doesn't make any sense. David... Okay, you're about to be mauled by your enemies. And the one thing you want is to live in the temple. That's the one thing, really. That's the one thing you want is to live in the temple. You're about to be destroyed. David, you're about to be devoured. And you want to go to a worship service. That doesn't make any sense to me. I could think of a ton of other things that I would ask as my one thing. Could you? I could think of a ton of other things. God, here's what I would think. God, I ask you for one thing. Rain down fire from heaven and devour my adversaries. That makes a lot more sense to me. Or God, get me out of here. God, save me. God, deliver me. God, change my circumstances. That makes a lot more sense. Living in the temple makes zero sense to me. 
So why? Why does David ask? This is the one thing he asked for in his trouble. Is to, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. Why? Why is this? The reason is because the temple, the house of the Lord, was the place where God dwelt with man on earth. If you wanted to be with God, this is where you went. You went to the house of the Lord. It's really interesting. If you look in verses 4 and 5, you're going to see a couple of different terms that are going to be used to describe this place. In verse 4, he calls it the house of the Lord. At the end of verse 4, he calls it the temple. In verse 5, he calls it God's shelter. And he also calls it his tent. So he gives several different terms. And if you are a Jew and you are reading this, you would probably be really confused. You're probably thinking, well, which place is it? David, you've mentioned a couple of different places. The tent, that makes me think of the tabernacle. But then there's the temple. Well, why do you say both? Which one do you want to go to? Do you want to go to the tabernacle or do you want to go to the temple? Which one? And what he's doing here is he's trying to emphasize the fact that he is not referring to a specific physical location. He's referring to where God is. It's not a specific place. This is further emphasized in the fact that he says he wants to inquire in the temple. And this would sound kind of strange to you if you knew that the temple had not been built yet. It would not be built till after his death by his son Solomon. And so that emphasizes the fact he's not talking about a specific location. He is saying, I want to be where God is. I want to be in his dwelling place. I want to be in his presence. I want to see his beauty. This is what I need more than anything. A few descriptions of the house of God found in the Psalms. Psalm 26, 8. It says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. This is the place where God's glory dwells. Psalm 63, 2. He says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. This is the place where you would look upon God and you would see his power and glory. In Psalm 96, 6, says splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So you can see why David would want to be here. This is where God is. This is where his glory, his beauty, his majesty dwells. His strength dwells. This is the one thing you need. This is the one thing you need. But there is one huge problem. One major problem. David cannot just enter into the house of God. He cannot just waltz in and behold the beauty of God. You can't just do that. That sounds wonderful, but we don't decide the terms by which we enter into God's presence. And this sounds like a really foolish thing to ask if you are a sinner like David, an adulterer and a murderer. It's a really foolish thing to make this the one thing that you desire, is to go into the holy presence of God. This is not what you would ask. God himself has given the standard for who can enter. He set the terms. He gives the requirements for who can access him in his, in his temple, in his presence. If you look in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, we see the requirements that God lays down. He says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand 
in his holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So if you want to come into God's presence, you must have clean hands. You must have a pure heart. You must be completely free of sin, completely pure before God. Or as Jesus says it, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You must be pure before God. But this is a huge problem for David. This is a huge problem for you and me, is that we are not pure. We do not have a pure heart. We have done many wicked works. We have filthy hands. We have rebelled against God. We do not want to go into his holy place. If we go into God's holy place in our sin, the last thing we will see is the beauty of God. We will be encountered with the wrath of God. It's the last thing you want as a sinner is to go into the house of the Lord. But there's good news for David, a sinner like David. There's good news for rebels like you and me. That there is a way for sinners to enter in to this holy presence of God. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And think about this. It calls Jesus in that verse, the righteous one. The righteous. He is the only righteous. He is the only one with clean hands and a pure heart. He is that. He can ascend the hill of the Lord. Only him. But you and I can't. But the good news for us is that Christ died for our sins. The, sin, the punishment that we deserve for our sins fell on the righteous one. The holy one. The one with the pure heart. It was accredited to him and he died in our place. You know what the result is for all who have faith in him? It says that he might bring us to God. We don't walk into God's presence. We are brought into the presence of God by Christ. That is the only way for anyone to ever enter the holy place of God. And David, he had faith in Christ. He was declared righteous. His wicked works were not counted against him. He could enter the presence of God just like you and me and all who have faith in Christ. This is good news for us. And so, where do we go? If we want to see the glory of God, if we want to meet with the living God, where do you and I go? Well, the good news is we don't have to go to a physical building. We don't have to go to the temple. If we wanted to, to meet with him every day, we would have to go to the temple every day of our life, but we don't have to. The good news is that we have become the temple of the living God. Ephesians 3.17 says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. All who have faith, Christ dwells in them. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. If you want to behold the beauty of God, if you want to behold the glory of God, you don't have to go to the temple. You can open this book every day. If you look in 2 Corinthians 3.18... It says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Every believer can read the Bible, and the veil has been ripped off of your heart, and you can behold the glory of Jesus every day. What David prays in Psalm 27, 4 is possible for the believer. You can be near to God, and you can behold his beauty every single day of your life. This is awesome. We can draw near because of Christ and we can enter into his presence. This is good news for us. 
Well, we see here in Psalm 27.4, what David desires is he desires constant communion with God. He desires to constantly experience God's presence. This is what he wants. And you see this by some of the language that you see in this verse. He doesn't just say, I asked the Lord for this. That's not what he says. He said, one thing I've asked the Lord, and this I seek after it. And seek is a present continuous verb. It means I continue, continue to seek after it. I don't stop. I continually seek after this. I continually want to be in the presence of God. And he says, I want to be there, not just one day. He says, I want to be there all the days of my life. Every single day I want to be in his presence. I don't want just a little bit. I don't want Jesus to be just a compartment in my life. I want to be immersed in his presence. I want him every single day. I don't want to just look at his beauty. I don't want just a glance of his beauty. I want to gaze upon his beauty. I want to stare him in the face and I don't want to depart. This is the one thing I want. What David is saying is that in his time of trouble, in his greatest hour of need, the one thing he needs is God. He needs to be with God. He needs to be near to God. He needs to see God's glorious beauty. He needs to behold Him. If he sees his God, if he can only see his God rightly, all the threats will seem pathetic. When he has this right view of his God, when he has seen his God, he has met with his God, everything else looks pathetic compared to him. So I pray that we would be a people who takes advantage of this, that we draw near to God, that we see his beauty, we draw near to him in his word. For all who do this, for every believer who seeks fellowship with God, who seeks constant communion with the Lord, there's a blessing that is attached to your life. Like it actually has a benefit in your life. And the benefit is that God will be with you. Like you will actually be near near to God. And you see this blessing in verse 5. This is the response. This is the result of those who draw near to God. It mentions three times something that God will do. It says he will three times. This is what he will do if you seek to be in his presence all the days of your life. He says, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. This is what will happen for those who draw near to God. God will be with them. He will be a hedge of protection around them. He will be a shelter for them. He will be a safe haven in trouble. Their God will be with them. He will be near He will lift them high upon a rock. He will give them a firm place to stand. In verse 6, he says, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. What this shows me is that if you seek God, if you draw near to God, it does not necessarily mean that your circumstances are going to change. It doesn't mean your life is going to get better. But God will be near you. If you see here, his head is lifted up above his enemies all around him. They are still there, but his God is protecting him. His God is a shelter for him. And God will do this. God will do this for us if we draw near to him. And when God does this, David says, he's going to do this. He will do this, but I'm going to do something. When he does this, I'll do something. And he says, and I, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. 
Even with my enemies all around me in God's presence, I will worship him. I will shout for joy in his presence for his nearness to me. David is full of confidence. He is busting at the seams with confidence in God. And something very interesting happens in this psalm as we go to verses 7 through 12. There is a completely different tone. When I was studying this, I read many commentators and many of them, they said that they believed that at one time this psalm was actually two different psalms. They thought it was two separate psalms that they put together and joined them into one psalm. And the reason they said for this was that in verses 1 through 6, David is so confident, like extremely confident. And then verses 7 through 12, all of a sudden, he's like depressed. Like these don't fit together. They seem like a contradiction. These psalms don't go together. And I want to let you know this morning that this is not a contradiction. This is actually a very accurate picture of what the Christian life looks like. David, on the outside, is confident. He is rejoicing. He is without fear. And on the inside, he is crying out to God for help. He is desperate. God, help me. This is what's going on in the secret place in David's life. And all we see is him confident on the outside. I think we need to be careful when we think about different categories of believers. You know what I mean? Like sometimes we can put believers in different categories in our minds. We can think of different people and we can put them in a group. And we can say, these Christians, these are the, the really strong Christians. Like these are the ones like they got it going on. Uh, they love the Lord. They're always doing good. They're always happy. They're always confident. They're always preaching the gospel. And then there's a, these other brothers and sisters. They're always, they always seem like they're struggling. And so we have these, these strong Christians but then we have these, these weak Christians. And I think we need to be careful because we can begin to believe that there are actually strong Christians. There are actually people who are self-sufficient. Like, man, they can do it. They're really good. And that's just not true. If you ever see someone confident on the outside, the reason is because something's going on internally. Something's going on with them and God. And I think... What we can do sometimes is we can look at other people and we can say, man, like, yeah, they're really happy. They're really doing well, but they don't understand what I'm going through. Like if, if they had to to be in my shoes, then they probably wouldn't be as confident. They probably wouldn't be as happy. And that is just an excuse. Just to be honest with you, that is an excuse not to seek God. David has enemies all around him. He has every reason to complain. He has every reason to quit. He has every reason to throw in the towel. But he doesn't. You know what he does? He seeks the face of God in his trouble. May we be a people who when we are in the day of trouble that we cry out to God. We draw near to God. David, he looks like a strong man on the outside, but he is not. You can see this in his prayer. He does not think he is great at all. He thinks he is extremely weak. I want to share a quote with you from Hudson Taylor. I really love this quote. He says, God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. These are the confident ones. These are the ones used by God. The ones who lean on him. They are so weak that they know that they need him. And so they lean on him. And this is what you see David doing in verse 7. Listen, 
Listen to his neediness. Listen to his desperation. He says, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. He says, hear me, God. I'm crying aloud. Be gracious to me. I need grace. I have nothing in myself. There's no good thing that dwells in me. I need your grace. Without you, I'm nothing. He says, answer me, God. I need you, God. He is desperate for God. He is a weak man who is drawing near to the strength of his God. And David begins to seek the face of God. In verse 8, he says, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Most of your translations begin with, You have said. And this was added by translators. This is not in the original language. But the same idea is in this verse. He is meditating on something that God has said. God has commanded all men to seek Him. And in this verse where it says, seek my face, the verb seek is a plural verb, meaning it's generally for every person. God is telling all people, seek my face. And David is saying, God, I am. I've responded to your your call. I have responded. I am seeking your face. God, look here. Your face, Lord, I seek. The commands of God, the invitations of God, they are out there. But they're only beneficial to us if we personally respond. In our hearts, we respond to God's invitation. And he's saying, God, I am doing it. I'm seeking your face. To seek the face of God is to seek the presence of God. These are used as synonyms in Scripture. And the worst thing that could ever happen to a Christian is for God's face to be hidden from you. You see this many times when it talks about God's hidden face. What it refers to is that God is absent from you. He's not near. It means that he's not hearing your prayers. And this is terrible. This is the worst thing that could ever happen to David. He's saying, God, I am seeking your face. In Psalm 24, 6, the redeemed people of God are called the generation of those who seek him. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So specifically, we seek the face of the God of Jacob. Jacob's God. That's that's the God whose face we seek. And your mind should immediately go to Genesis 32. And if you look in Genesis 32, there's a situation where David, uh, sorry, Jacob is about to meet his brother Esau. And the last thing he knows about Esau is that Esau wants to kill him. Jacob stole his birthright and his blessing, and Esau hates Jacob, and he wants to wipe him out. And Jacob is scared. He begins to have many human strategies. He begins to send gifts ahead to appease his brother, hoping that this will save him. And before he meets his brother, something that happens to him. He meets God. He wrestles with God. A man wrestled with God. And God, God even put his hip out of joint. And then God even said, let me go. And he said, no, I won't let you go unless you bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And it says, and God blessed him there. And then he named the place. Jacob named the place. He named it Penuel. So you go back and check this out. Penuel means the face of God. He says, because I've seen God face to face. This is what it means to seek the face of God. It looks like wrestling with God. You will not let him go. You are pursuing him with all of your might until you receive the blessing of God, until he draws near, draws near to you. 
This also makes me think of Luke 18. If you remember the blind beggar, remember him? He was blind and he was sitting on the road and he heard that Jesus was walking by. And he wanted to get to Jesus. And there were many people in front of him. He couldn't get to him. And so he began to cry out. He said, son of David, have mercy on me. And you know what happened next? The people in front of him said, shut up. He can't hear you. Stop crying out to him. And so what you would think would happen is that next he would, he would throw on the towel. He would quit in discouragement. But you know what he does? It says he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And you know what Jesus did? Jesus stopped and he commanded that they bring that man to him. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? This is what it looks like for us to seek the face of God. It is desperation. It is crying out and not giving up, continuing, persevering in prayer, seeking our God, wanting his presence, wanting him to be near. In Psalm 27, verse 9, you see that David is terrified that his God would not be near him. This is the worst thing that could ever happen. He begs God. He pleads with him. He says, God, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. What we see here is that David is afraid of progressive levels of rejection by God. He begins, God, hide not your face from me. And then, Lord, don't turn me away. God, don't cast me off and then don't utterly forsake me. He's afraid of God leaving him, not being near to him. He is desperate. And then all of a sudden you, you see that all of a sudden David begins to find comfort and encouragement as he meditates on who his God is, on the very person of God. And he begins to find comfort. And he says, oh, you, you have been my help. God, you have always been my help. You have never not helped me. You have been my help, God. And he says, and you are the God of my salvation. He finds Comfort in the gospel that this God has saved him. This God did not even spare his own son for him. How would he not give him everything else? He knows that this God took on human flesh and suffered and died in his place. Even when he was an enemy spitting in his face. He knows this God will answer him. He knows this God will draw near to him. Surely he will. In verse 10, he says, For my, ma- my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. So he says, My father and mother have forsaken me. And what he's saying here is that it's even possible for those who are nearest to me to forsake me. Those who should receive me. Those who should be closest to me. It's possible. They might forsake me. And this is true. Some people in here may have experienced that. Being forsaken by someone close. Maybe even father and mother. Or husband or wife or brother or sister or a best friend. It's possible. It can happen. But the good news for us is that the Lord will always take you in. He will take you in. He will receive you. He will not turn you away. If you seek his face, you will not go away empty handed. He will take you in. He will receive you. This is the God of your salvation. He loves you. You are his. David begins to rejoice in the fact that he has God. He knows his God will always be with him. His God has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. No matter what, he will never leave. 
This is great news that even if we lose everything in this world, we have Christ. Always. We will always have Christ. And if this is not good news to you, you have not gazed upon his beauty. He is glorious. He is beautiful. And he will never leave you. We see David. Now he finishes his prayer in verses 11 and 12 with a personal petition. Before we read these, I want to point out that this is the end of his prayer. This is the end. He makes his personal petition at the end. If we are consumed with our own well-being and we are consumed with ourselves, this end part will fill our whole prayer time. It will take up the whole part. And this, for David, this is at the very end. This is like a tagline on the end of his prayer. His prayer has mainly been God-centered. He has been seeking God, wanting to be near to God. And then at the end of his prayer, he makes a personal petition. That's a lesson for us to learn. That the thrust of our prayer should be towards God, being near to God. But the good news is that our God, he does care about specific things. He does care about our circumstances. What we see in verse 11 is we see David begin to submit himself to God. He begins to humble himself under the mighty hand of his God. He does not ask God to prosper his way. He does not ask God to prosper his plans. He says, teach me your way, O Lord. Teach me your way. I'm submitting to your way. Lead me on a level path. God, what is your will? God, I'm not telling you what needs to happen. God, you just tell me what I need to do, and I will do it. And he says, give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. He makes a very specific request for deliverance. And, and this, is, this is awesome that our God, he cares about these things. If you go back to that story of the blind beggar in Luke 18, Jesus, after crying out to Jesus, Jesus commands him to be brought near. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? And whenever I hear that, there's a, a quick question that comes to my mind. And I say, what do you mean, Jesus? Like, the guy has been screaming for mercy. The dude obviously wants mercy. Why are you asking what do you want him to do? And the point Jesus is making is Jesus wants to know exactly, no, specifically, what do you want me to do? And the blind beggar responds that I may receive my sight. And then he receives his sight. You see how compassionate Christ is, that he cares about very specific things. What we see in this prayer is we see a desperate man. This is not a cute Sunday morning prayer. This is a man who is pouring out his heart like water before the Lord. He is in agony. And did you know it's okay to pray like this? It's okay to be honest and blunt in your prayers, to cast your cares upon the Lord. He cares for you. It's okay to do that. We can approach him like this. And then we begin to see David begins to experience the peace of God, which passes all understanding. After crying out to God in desperation, in verse 13, he says, I believe. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. I believe it. His faith is strengthened by the goodness of his God. He knows his God is good. He will see his goodness in this life because he is good. I've prayed to him and he is good and he has heard my cry. He knows that if I ask him for bread, he's not going to give me a stone. He's a good God. And this strengthens his faith 
And he ends in verse 14 and he says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. It's an exhortation to wait for the Lord. He knows that his God is the sovereign Lord over all. This is a theme that runs throughout this psalm. Thirteen times the name for God, the Lord, is mentioned. He's trying to tell us something. Over all these troubles, all, over all the trials, he knows. He knows that his God is the Lord. He is in control of it all. He knows that his God has all authority in heaven and earth. He knows that he even works all things together for good to those who love God. He knows his God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He could do whatever he wants. He could change his circumstances in a moment. And he finds comfort and encouragement to wait on his God. I know that there are people in this church who are going through trials, maybe for extended seasons, extended periods of time. And you have been crying out to God. You have been waiting for God and you don't see results. And I, I plead with you not to lose heart. Wait for the Lord. Wait for Him. Isaiah 64.4 says that He is a God who acts for those who wait for Him. Like He's not sitting there doing nothing. He acts. He actually moves. But He does it for those who wait. Who wait for Him. Who trust Him. Who know that He is good. What we see in this psalm is David is full of confidence. Beginning a prayer, full of confidence. At the end, full of confidence. But in the middle is desperation. It's a man who's going to war, fighting for faith in Christ. I pray that we would be a people who are near to God. We draw near. We seek to gaze upon His beauty. And we cry out to Him for help. I plead with you, wait for the Lord. He is good and He will never leave you. Let's pray. Father, we praise your name. God, we thank you that you are the Lord. You are trustworthy. God, we thank you that you hear our prayers. God, we thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us. God, thank you that it is not a waste of time to meet with you. It is not a waste of time to pray to you. God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Lord, help us to see you rightly. Help us to see your beauty. God, help us to see your glory. Help us to worship you, Lord, even in the midst of trial. Help us to worship you. Please draw near to us, God. Please be among us. God, we thank you for your goodness. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.